a book like this should never be written. And then he says, now this is why I wrote this book. And why? Because the person who's running after the treasure is running as fast as he can. Where the person who's running away from a lion is running faster than he can. So it's producing new emotions based on the, the ideas that we understand. And that takes a much longer way, but it's more pervasive because at that point you've identified, truly identified it. You don't have to keep calling on your emergency rescue medication. This is who I've become. I've changed. Hi, I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. Welcome to From the Inside Out, now a global community that keeps growing every day thanks to each and every one of you. Right here is where you'll discover life-changing insights from some of the world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and our everyday heroes. We believe that meaningful change comes from taking inspiration and turning it into action. In fact, that's how this podcast was created, in an Uber, where we were both inspired by each other's life experiences and how much we could learn from each other. We're so glad you've joined our conversation today. The path to meaningful change starts right here, right now. From the inside out. We're back with another episode for you, Um, unique one. Rifka, you had recommended. You know, I love that you and I, um, you we each bring guests to the table that you know that we've admired or that we encountered, and we introduce them to each other. And you introduced Rachel Schmuckler to me. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to bring her on the podcast? And also tell us a little bit about the female voice in general. I know you did a little special thing, not a little, a big special thing last night in memory of your grandmother that was a big success. So I think our listeners might appreciate hearing a little bit of that feminine power and how you use it to make a difference. That's what this podcast episode is all about today, the female energy, the female voice. And I really experienced that this week. I had organized an evening together with Rifki Kaplan from Tzfat. And if you want to hear the episode that we did with her, because I was inspired by her too, go to the episode called Trust the Timing of Your Life. We'll hear more about her. But she she lives in Sfat and she renovated the women's mikveh there. She created a mural for women. She's the visionary and Michal Machnik is the artist and he did a magnificent job. So empowering for a woman to see this. It starts with the creation of the world and it goes through till mikvat were built today and the impact women had throughout the ages. And when I saw this, she showed it to me, I felt so uplifted and inspired as a Jewish woman, that I just wanted to share this with people in the United States of America before this mural went off to Israel, where everyone there is going to be able to experience a tour, actually, where Rifki gives deeper explanations behind how women impacted our history. She did this on the evening itself, and there were an eclectic group of women there, and you could just feel a really beautiful, uplifting, empowering energy from all the women there. And um, it felt very special to be able to do that in honor of my grandmother. And if you want to donate to this mikvah, I'm going to put the link in the podcast notes. It's a special mitzvah to donate. And you should definitely, when you go to Tzfat, visit this mikvah chana and get a tour of this beautiful feminine mural where you can feel uplifted as a Jewish woman. In this, Within this mural, we're all there. And I, I saw my grandmother there. That's why I wanted to do it in her honor, because she is an example of a role model for the Jewish woman today. And so is our guest today, Rachel Shmukla, who uses the gift Hashem has given her to make this world a better place by inspiring women, all different types of women around the globe. So she has a class that she gives in LA to women on Tanya. And then actually it was my sister-in-law, Naomi Gutnik, who introduced me to her and said, if you want to hear a really deep, beautiful Tanya class, 
listened to Rachel Schmuckler. I started listening to her and I, I felt so empowered by it. And I had a deeper and clearer understanding of Tanya. But there was something about hearing Tanya from a female voice, female to female. There's something very uplifting about that. And I think it's important for women to gather together, for women to hear each other, for women to hear wisdom from women. And Rachel Schmuckler is that woman. She has a lot of knowledge. She's very learned. And she gives a, this class in California and now started putting it on a podcast so that we can all hear it too. Ida, did, how did you feel hearing Tanya from the female perspective? Tanya itself is um, it's very powerful. The text, though, is very hard to um, understand. So someone who just goes into the Tanya and starts to read the text, it's hard to, it's hard to know, it's hard to really understand how this can be life-changing, right? And one of the biggest and most important factors in learning Tanya is having the right channel so that you can internalize these teachings. You can't do it from the book itself. That's why we need great Tanya teachers. And by the way, that's why we need great teachers, period. The way information is passed down from um, a parent to a child or from a teacher to a student makes all the difference. So this particular episode, I know a lot of people listen to Rabbi Gordon's podcast on Tanya. Um, it's amazing. My son actually listens to it. So I know it's for pretty much all ages. Yeah, um, I listen to it too. Right. And, there's yeah. also Reb, and I've listened to Rabbi Shays Taub's Tanya classes. And Shays Taub's I, are, are amazing too. Yes. So here, so I think it's nice to have a feminine voice teach Tanya. Because that, as as a woman, it, it, I think it resonates more when it's taught from a taught by a woman to women. And like you said, you know, in the room where it happens, remember we had this conversation. Like when you had this event for your grandmother, you have a bunch of women in a room that is so empowering. Especially seeing the women in history who have made a difference. You know, like women have been empowered throughout history, and I think it's important to remember the women who had a voice. And the women who made a difference, even though they were living in a time where maybe they didn't have the same opportunities we have today, yet they still use their gifts to make a difference. So um, I think that hopefully this podcast, this episode will um, will inspire women and men. You know, I think sometimes it's nice to hear a woman teacher, no matter who you are and where you come from. And if you do like the way she conveys this, you know, these teachings she has a great podcast and you get you have access you know, at your fingertips. And I do believe even though the podcast world is so saturated, you can find gems. And this is this might just be one of them. Um, and we'll share the link in our podcast notes. Yeah. And our podcast is all about um, feeling empowered and making a difference. And when I was looking at that mural, I was thinking, you know, the women throughout our history, they may not have realized what an impact they were making through their at the time, seemingly small acts. And Rachel Schmuckler going out and giving this class, she may have, she was hesitant at first. She's like, I don't know if I want to do this. And she started this class, then she put it on the podcast. I personally know people who have made serious changes from her classes, all different types of people. And it's amazing the impact we, we can have. I hope you gained some new insights in, into Tanya's teachings and what it can do for you in your life. So if someone were to say to you, you know, Tanya seems a little old for me and um, hard for me to apply to today's world, and I love learning psychology, that seems much more relevant. What would you say to them? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Tanya is the most progressive work that there is out there. However, 
far ahead we are in psychology, this is like light years ahead. And we have so much, we're not going to catch up in psychology because the, the essence of it is in the Tanya. But, you know, there's a story of Rabbi Shachar from Los Angeles, the Rosh Yeshiva. He's famous as the Rosh. As a teenager, one perm, he wrote this like letter to the Rebbe, like pouring out his heart. And part of the letter was of his teenage struggles. And then he wrote to the Rebbe about like, you know, he's never going to be a gadol like these other gadolim. But for the teenage struggles part of the letter, the Rebbe answered him, for sure you have a Tanya with an index. Go look it up over there. The Rebbe is so certain that all of the struggles that we encounter are in, dealt with in the Tanya. And of course, can't, some people have to, we all have to, but it's not something that you just read it and then you understand. The Alter Rebbe said, I have written down the answers to all of the questions in this book. And you look at the book and it's not a book of questions and answers. So how is this answers to all the questions? But essentially what the Alter Rebbe did was he took the answers to the questions, but instead of putting the questions, because then you read a question and you say, well, I don't have that question. Yeah, but it could be answered by the same answer. Right. So he took all the answers, put it inside, and we have to struggle to get our answer. And he didn't take the human connection out of the Tanya. You know, in the introduction to the Tanya, the altar says, a book like this should never be written. And then he says, now this is why I wrote this book. Meaning, meaning it should be, it shouldn't need it. Like, what does that mean? That it the, shouldn't... the reason why is because the way these ideas are transmitted is from teacher to student. The Baal Shem Tov, there's a story of the Baal Shem Tov that he once had a dream that he saw a demon holding his book and he never wrote a book. So he asked his students the next day, which one of you have been committing my teachings to writing? And one of them admitted that he did. And he said, let me see what you wrote. And he looked at it, he said, not one thing that I said is written in here. Now, obviously, the student was writing down what he remembered the Baal Shem Tov saying. Right. But you can't compare transmission from teacher to student to the written word. And the altar, in the introduction, Akdamas Hamalake, the compiler's forward, he calls it, addresses why a book isn't the way to go. Like, one of the reasons is that a teacher sees his student, sees where he's at, and then addresses him from that place. A book can't do that. And so he said, I'm not taking out the teacher-student connection here. I'm begging the elders in the community. Someone comes to you and asks you a question. Don't pretend with false humility you don't have the answer. Help them work through the Tanya and get the answer. So it's definitely all in the Tanya, for sure. So you started 14 years ago. And because you truly have to like delve deeply into the concepts, you have to understand them so well to be able to teach them. That's That's like a big you know, responsibility. And I never thought I would. I, I it started off with, I used to have a mommy and me program and had a newsletter that I sent out every week. And one of the women that I met, um, we connected over the newsletter and she said, I want to come learn with you, Tanya. And I said, oh no, I can't teach Tanya. I'm just like a middle of learning Tanya myself. She said, it doesn't matter. Just once a week, I'm coming to your house. Can we sit and learn together? I said, okay, we'll do the same stuff I'm doing by myself. I'll do it with you. And then we did it for, I don't know, maybe like a year or two. And she's like, Rachel, you're going to be giving a class. I said, I'm Amazing. not she giving a class. She, she saw something in you and she got you to push past. She got the, the group competent. together. I was like, I'm not doing it. She's like, you'll call it my rabbi, the <laughs> one who made me a balchuba. He teaches Tanya. Go ask him what he thinks about what you should teach and what you shouldn't teach. And I spoke to him and we started off. She organized this class and then lo and behold, I mean, I just think that's, that's amazing because one woman had this desire to learn Tanya 
she saw something in you and then she pushed you to give her the classes. And then, then you're going on and giving classes to all these other women. And look what this one woman believing in you has done for so many other people. Isn't it amazing? I always tell that to her. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I can't even believe that she just had the guts to push me. And that's another amazing thing about class is that the learning, the deep studying we do together is for sure because of the amazing woman at class. Like, they're the most insightful, deep, good people at class. And because of that, we get a deeper understanding together than if I would just sit there and study by myself. That wouldn't happen. Wow. Definitely. Well, that, a that's a sign of a, a really good teacher because a really good teacher realizes that they're learning so much from their students and that they wouldn't be the teacher without who the students are. So yeah. that's, that's kudos to you. Well, it forces us. It forces us to dig deeper because right. if you want to teach, you have to really work hard. Right. And what's really interesting is there's a book called The Art of Education by Ravius Ginsburg. And he talks about preparing a class for your students. And he said, you have to think about your students while you prepare a class. Like that's something you have to have in mind. And a lot of times I'll find myself preparing and I'm thinking, okay, I know this person is going to ask me that challenging question. And that person's going to ask me that challenging question. I kind of look at the chapter through their eyes and I'm like, I better, I better get an answer for this. This is a no, this is a question that's going to, so it forces me to work harder and dig deeper. And to understand who your students are. Yeah. If you're going to think about what their question, what they're going to ask. And yeah. to identify also, that's another thing. That's another challenge is unless I can identify, I don't want to teach. So it will happen to me every once in a while that I'm like, I don't know, until I, something strikes within me, I'm going to have to stop for a little bit and let's that's great. research. Let me speak to someone. And that's happened to me a few times for different reasons, sometimes for, you know, deep intellectual concepts that I have to really work through. And sometimes for emotional reasons, like until it just resonates in my heart, I, I can't, I can't teach it. So you have to be like, so true to your own process also that's part of what helps you connect it's like when you're able to be authentic you have to be authentic to know what you're what when you could teach or when you need to just take a step back you, uh, you have to be able to identify yeah yeah yeah, identify. yeah and it yeah. doesn't mean that that you know the ideals of the tanya are incredible so it doesn't mean that i'm a walking example of tanya that's not what it means you know when i first started a podcast one of my friends asked me do you feel like you have an imposter syndrome and i was like what's the imposter syndrome it's like you profess something that you don't actually believe in. And I said, absolutely not. I 100% believe in everything that we learn in Tanya. Doesn't mean that I am the living example. As Rasashem, I wish. Right, it's aspirational. <laughs> but it's not, the, it's, not, it's not the same thing as believing what you're teaching. I struggle just like everybody else struggles. Right. Well, that's the, the, whole, the whole Tanya is about the struggle. The struggle. <laughs> What's the goal of Tanya, of learning Tanya? What's, what's the goal? So, and that, that is a key, one of the breakthroughs of the Tanya, if not the breakthrough is it changes what's the goal because it used to be, okay, so you move from this level to this level to this level, and then you become a prophet. It's like, okay, so either I'm going to be delusional and I'm going to believe that I'm really at that level, or I'm going to be a hypocrite because I'm not. Right. And the Tanya heals us from that feeling of hypocrisy. It's life is a struggle. And there are two souls, not one. We have a divine soul, which is our deepest, truest self. 
And then we have our animal soul, which is constantly fighting for attention and the human animal, basically. And there's the fight between them. So the fact that I struggle doesn't make me a bad person. In fact, some people, most people are meant to struggle for their whole life. And the struggle itself is precious to Hashem. It does so much away with that nagging feeling that people have of hypocrisy, like, who do I think I can to be so good when just five minutes ago I lost my patience, I did something else that wasn't appropriate, and now I'm going to suddenly be davening? Right. Now I'm suddenly a mitzvah lady? Yeah. Actually, when you were doing all those bad things, that's when you were being hypocritical, because that's not your true self. You gave in to your animal self, but your truest self is your deepest self, and it's hard to access sometimes, but it's okay. We struggle. In fact, the Rebbe has this talk, Parshas Mikates, where he talks about the myth of all or nothing, the time of exile. And he said that the mother of all exiles, Gullus Mitzrayim, started out with a series of dreams, the Ice Age dreams, Ari's dreams, the butler and the baker's dreams. And it's not a coincidence. Because what is a dream? A dream is a place where two opposites can coexist. Like you can actually see an elephant going through the eye of a needle. And that's what exile is. That's what Gullus is. You know, during the time of the Beis HaMikdash, the inner powers of the soul radiated within a person. They were able to connect with that. But that also limited them that if they were tummy, they could not go into the base of Mikdash. Now, our encompassing powers of the soul shine. So we don't really feel it, but they're much more powerful. And it says about this time, that Hashem dwells with us in the midst of our impurity. So we can do both. We can be reaching for the highest levels of aspiration, studying the deepest stuff. And at the same time, we have an animal soul and we're falling for silly things that we wish we didn't fall for. But it doesn't mean we can't progress at the very same time. Yes. Is the animal soul the ego? The animal soul, well, is the Not ego because it. it's it's the consciousness of self apart from Hashem. Got it. Because really there's only one truth. Right. And that is that there's nothing else besides Hashem. And that's what the godly soul knows. And it inspires. It's this being that yearns to transcend and become one with Hashem. And then there's this animal soul that, not bad, it just wants it, its comforts and it has a sense of self. And there's me and this is what I need. It's just our pet. But it so can be bad. It can be bad. And truthfully, if we're going to look at the world through the lens of Kabbalah, where, you know, world of halacha, there's black, white, and gray. So what you may not do, what you must do, and rishas, optional, you could, you don't have to. When it comes to Kabbalah, there's either good, holy, or bad, sitra akhra, the other side. How do we define sitra akhra? Sitra akhra doesn't have, it's not a positive definition. It's a definition of what it is not. There's sad hakadusha, the side of holiness, and then there's sitra akhra, the other side. How is that defined? Just that it's not holy. If it's not holy, it's perforce the klipa, it's the other side. So if we're going to divide the world literally into just black and white, then the animal soul is bad. But what makes it bad? Bad in the sense that it has a sense of self. Like we have to rethink terms that we use. Like the term for bad, ra, it comes from unstable, shaky wall. The, mid, the Mishnah talks about kaiso ru'ua, an unstable wall. It just means that it's misaligned with its source. So we say bad and in English language, take it a certain way. But what we mean to say, it's misaligned. It's not connected. It's not radiating its divine core. Okay. So I'm trying to process this. It's a little bit esoteric um, and I want to bring it home in a practical way. So when I think of good and bad, 
I think about the idea that we should be very wary of labeling like people as good or bad, right? There's people that we love and we care about, people that we don't care about. Um, there are situations that we understand and that we don't understand. And it's not so much good and bad, it's just more how close we are to the thing. So in my studies, I learned something called uh, the fundamental attribution error. And I think it's it's I think it's great. And it's basically essentially, um, you know, if you're driving a car and you cut someone off, you would hope that they understand like, hey, I'm in a rush or, you know, I've got to get somewhere that they would give you the benefit of the doubt. Whereas if someone else cuts you off, you might get angry and say, oh, how rude, right? That's, that's such a rude person. Why? Because you're farther away from that, I guess, person. So you're more likely to attribute it ne- like this negative judgment. And we do it, you know, with our kids, parent will say, oh, my kid, you know, my kid meant well, but that other kid didn't mean well, right? Okay. So that's one thing that there's no good and bad. It's just how close we are to the person or how much we love the person or how close we are to the situation. Then there's this idea that no, there actually are good people and bad people and good situations and bad situations, right? And like there's good and evil. And then there's the idea that no, we all have both. Everybody has both and we're battling those two forces daily. So those are the things that that show up for me when I think of good and bad and my understanding of it. So the Sitra Akhra, could you try to explain, maybe help clarify the nature of the Sitra Akhra as it relates to good and bad? So Sitra Akhra <laughs> has another another name. Okay. It is the Klipa, and that's the positive definition of it. Whereas Sitra Akhra doesn't have any definition other than it's the other side. Klipa means a shell. And it now defines the relationship between the two sides. It's the shell that covers over the good. So Um, it hides the good. It's like if you have no experience with a tangerine, you might think that all it is is a peel. You think that's what it is, but no, there's a fruit inside. Right. So klipa hides the good. Now, is it evil? Well, it's evil insofar as it doesn't radiate its divine goodness, but there's different levels in the klipa. There's klipa snaiga which is the rectifiable klipa. Mm-hmm. And that's where most of our work is. Right. And then there's shalish klipa satimeis lagamre, which are the three completely impure klipot, and they are not rectifiable. So they are truly evil. They're called utterly evil. So within the side of bad, there is the truly bad and the bad that must be elevated and rectified so that it becomes good. So there is, so there is, is as I'm saying. saying, there is evil. There's a right, malik. Right, right. There is evil. Right. Oh, you're you're asking if evil actually exists. Yeah. No, because you I, I, I were saying I'm trying you, to understand. Um, no, because you were saying the nefesh habahamas isn't all bad. So she was saying, is that is there evil within the nefesh habahamas? Okay, and now the nefesh habahamas, the Jewish animal soul comes from klipas nega, which is the rectifiable evil, or the rectifiable klipa rather. And it has positive traits because within the rectifiable klipa, there are good traits. Not all of humanity's soul is sourced in klipa snaiga. In fact, most of humanity's soul, their human biological soul, is not sourced in klipa snaiga. So that makes Jews different that even their default animal is right. has this inherent goodness in it. And that's why Jews are like naturally kind and they can't take credit for it. Just like some people have it. This is an analogy that Rabbi Steinsaltz gives. You know, some people have a talent for music and some people have a talent for art and Jews have a talent for kindness. Can we take, can we take it 
or can we take credit for it? We can't. That's that's our animal. Right. Our animal is kind. It's our weakness too. You know, the Jerusalem Talmud, I believe, says, go figure out this people. When they're asked to donate for the Mishkan, they donate. When they're asked to donate for the golden calf, they donate. You go figure. <laughs> that's interesting. That that Jews do that. You mean. Yeah. It's you. It's just our kindness. Right. Yeah, we right. just have to channel it properly. Saying earlier, I just want to say that you, for me, like learning Tanya, one of one of the things that you were just sharing is something that I've had a, an aha moment about that I found very comforting. That Hashem knows He created us this way, and He take when we let's say we've done something wrong or we've used you know really delved into our nefesh Bahamas, He takes comfort and enjoys when we overcome it. So we have to kind of go through that in order to actually overcome it, but he appreciates us overcoming a struggle or or something that we need to fix. Well, not only does he appreciate overcoming a struggle, the Zahir says that that's the highest level of pleasure has, of pleasure that Hashem has, is that when we subdue the Sitra Achra, it's the greatest pleasure that Hashem has. So we think of like the small struggles that we have and when we've overcome them, we give Hashem more pleasure than he gets from a tzaddik's work even. Right. Because subduing our little evil, and that little evil can be right now entertaining a negative thought about someone, and I'm choosing not to think of that anymore and to think about something else that's good. That moment of resisting the Sitra Ahura causes Hashem to push down the Sitra Ahura above. It causes global repercussions. We can't imagine the power of the little moments that we have in our own heart the global repercussions that happened because of that. But I think that you were talking about if a person had actually made a mistake. I'm talking about both. I'm then, talking about resistance of, of um, thoughts, um, overcoming that, and also, yeah, and also making a mistake as well. Like if a person has made a mistake, obviously we can't go ahead and make the mistake going to do teshuva because then we're in a bind. That's something that the author talks about in Tanya, bringing, calling upon the Talmud, and we can talk about that. But if a person has already done this right. mistake and then they go and do teshuva, they're they're able to rectify things that can't be rectified. We talked about those three cleavites that can't be rectified, but retroactively they can. If that becomes the impetus for somebody to come closer to Hashem, then they've actually rectified the unrectifiable. And what makes a balchuva so powerful, and that's why I always wish to call myself a balchuva. Like it's just I. <laughs> That's what we have to be. We have right. to be about yeah, Shiva. Right, right. What makes them so powerful is you think of two people who are running, right? So one person is running because he knows that there's $5 billion a mile away. The other person is running because he's being chased by a lion who wants to eat him. Who's running faster? You're getting close. Yeah, the person right. who's running away from the lion. And why? Because the person who's running after the treasure is running as fast as he can. Where the person who's running away from a lion is running faster than he can. And that's the Balchuva. That's the Balchuva. Like a tzaddik is running as fast as he can, as fast as he can. But the Balchuva is being impelled by this force of running faster than he can because he wants to get out of where he was and he wants to establish this relationship with Hashem. And that makes the Balchuva so powerful. Right. That's such a great analogy. Not mine. I got that one from Hasidus Mukhuaris, and they for sure got it from some Hasidic stories. It's also like a psychological concept that we're more driven by fear than by than by a desire to 
you know, achieve. Is that why, is that why we have to have fear of Hashem first and then love of Hashem? So the reason why we're supposed to have fear of Hashem first, and I, I hope that, that, no, I'll I'll tell you, that's not the reason why. (laughs) The fear that we're speaking about in that way, like that kind of fear is fear of punishment. People think of fear of Hashem and they equate it with fear of punishment. That's not fear of Hashem. Fear of punishment is not fear of Hashem. Fear of punishment is a self-based fear, fear of being really uncomfortable. Fear of Hashem means being so aware of him that we would never want to disappoint him. It's more like an awe. In awe. Yeah. In awe. Now there's different levels of that. There's just the level of being afraid to sin because I don't want to risk our relationship or to rebel against him. But then there's a higher level of being actually aware of who Hashem is. And that's a true level of fear of Hashem. They're both true, but that's a higher level of fear of Hashem. But the reason why we need to have fear of Hashem first before anything else is because without that, we haven't put ourselves aside. And talking about, let's say, the animal soul being ego-centered, if we're ego-centered, we haven't made space for Hashem. To truly allow holiness to shine within us, we first of all have to put our own will out of the way in deference to Hashem's will. And that's the story of the Katsgareva. Actually, when the Katsgareva was a little boy, somebody said to him, I'll give you a coin if you tell me where Hashem is. So he said, okay, and I'll give you two if you tell me where he's not. That's great. Very good. Growing up and having become the Katsgareva, Rebbe, he said to his chassidim, tell me where Hashem is. And they said, what do you mean? Hashem is everywhere. And he said, no, no. Hashem is wherever you let him in. And so fear of Hashem is surrender to him to allow him to shine through us that we don't, our ego is not getting in the way. And that's step one. That's, I love that. (laughs) No, I love that perspective of fear. Yeah, we have to be so careful with fear because we hate the word fear. Right. Because it's too much fear already. And we don't need it. Right. (laughs) Just don't like the anxiety. And today, with all the mental health issues, this is, I once heard somebody say this amazing thing. They said, Why are we so afraid of fear of Hashem? If you have fear of Hashem, you won't be afraid of anything else. It is the most liberating feeling. Imagine that all you are afraid of is disappointing Hashem. There will be no other fear in your life so connected and so reliant and so secure where you are, you wouldn't have any other fear. So actually fear of Hashem is the most liberating thing. I, I like really like that because you let, you can let go of all the other fears if you just tap into that one fear, the true, the, the one true fear, one, one thing we need to fear. Many people don't. Well, the only thing to fear is fear itself. That <laughs> fear is Hashem. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, and then, but you were going to say about, and then comes love of Hashem. And then comes love of Hashem, which actually our natural love for Hashem, there's there's a love for Hashem that we have to produce by meditation. And that's another thing people don't realize. They think like, no, there's no meditation in Chabad. What are you talking about? Chabad is focused on meditation because that's what it means. Use your mind to channel your to your emotions and make them alive. Like to truly live Chabad Chassidus, we can't do without meditation. And why did I say that? You said something before that. You said, no, I said, what about love of Hashem? So love for Hashem, there's a love that we produce by meditating on Hashem, but then there's just a natural love. Love is who we are. And a Jew by default, because we have a divine soul, yearns to attach to Hashem. Whether or not we realize it, that's just who we are. That's actually how the Altar Rebbe defines a Jew. You know, 
Rabbi Steinsdorf puts it so aptly. He says, other great thinkers and scholars try to define the Jewish people by their great people. They point to people like Abraham, Moses. The Alter Rebbe defines the Jewish people by its degenerates, by its criminals, by its thieves. How? At a moment of truth, they will give up their life rather than turn their back on Hashem. And history is replete with stories like that of Jews who didn't live a religious life, live an immoral life, and suddenly it was convert. And they said, no, they'll die. What? But you were never religious. You never believed in Hashem. Guess what? I do. And I'm not going to turn my back on Hashem. That is a Jew. The essence of, of a Jew is love for Hashem. So there's this whole, there's this, um, these words that we often say, it's close to you. Can you talk about what, what is close to us and how do we achieve that closeness? Because it sounds like it's an ideal place to be. Right. So is yeah. a verse from the Torah, right? Which right. Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, this Torah that I'm giving you is not far from you. It's not wondrous from you. For the matter is very close to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. And Altara writes right at the beginning of the Tanya that this book is based on this verse in the Torah to explain to us how the Torah is very near to us in our mouth and in our heart that we may do it. And he said, in the long but short way. And what is very close to us? Because if you're going to say, it's very close to you to behaviorally align yourself with the Torah. So maybe you don't feel it, you don't believe it, but go ahead and kosher, keep Shabbos. Then I can say, it's easy. Just do it, but don't identify. That's not what Moshe Rabbeinu said. Moshe Rabbeinu said, it's very close to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. This is something that you can identify with. And the author said, I'm going to explain it to you in the long and short way. So classically, the way to explain that is based on the story of the Talmud, Rabbi Shua ben Hanania said he was once bested by a little boy. Rabbi Shua ben Hanania was one of the greatest minds ever to have existed. And he was bested by a little boy who's sitting at the crossroads. And he said to him, little boy, which way does get to which, which way leads to the city? And he said, well, they both lead to the city. This one is the long but short, and this is the short but long. He said, okay, short but long. Gets on the road. He's almost at the city. He can't get inside because it's blocked by private orchards and vineyards. He has to go back. The little boy is sitting there, and he said, my boy, didn't you tell me that that is the short way? He said, didn't I also tell you it was the long way? And so he- Short, long way. Yeah, because it was short, meaning distance-wise, it was very close. It was long because practically speaking, you couldn't get in. So he went, he kissed the little boy on the head and he said, how wise are you Jewish people? Even the smallest ones of you are so wise. And he went to take the other road, which was longer, but it was free of blockages and he was able to get into the city. Mm -hmm. So the altar of his method is the short but long way. But Hasidic scholars also explain that in the Tanya itself, there is a short way and there's a long way. Isn't the short way what you just described? The short way is... Before, when you... When you're faced with the death experience. Exactly. Yeah. The short way is it's so easy for you in just a moment to remember who I am. That's it. You don't have to do any deep meditation. At this moment, I can remember that if I were put at a test of faith, I would have given up my life rather than convert, turn my back on Hashem. But who are we fooling? Anytime we do something that Hashem doesn't like, we are turning our back on him. So it's Clarity is just a thought away. You literally can just think about it. That's who I am. And that's the short way. 
And there's the longer way, and that is through meditation. And this is practice and thinking and studying till our heart changes in accordance to the things that we understand. So it's producing new emotions based on the, the ideas that we understand. And that takes a much longer way, but it's more pervasive because at that point you've identified, truly identified it. You don't have to keep calling on your emergency rescue medication. This is who I've become. I've changed. So is the goal really the long way, the long, mm-hmm. short way, basically the long way really just to meditate and to really delve into it. And that's really when you can be in a place where you're not constantly having to like, feel I don't know, anxiety, pain, whatever it is, because you you're you're grounded and balanced. And you've identified. Right. And for most of us are not born Sadiqim. So right. we'll never truly be able to say war over. But That's we'll what struggle. I was say. Yeah. How long is the long journey? Yeah. <laughs> the long journey is as so, long as life. Yeah. But it's different because you'll get to choose at which level you struggle. Meaning whether or not to struggle we don't have a choice. Right. But at what level to struggle? At to some extent, we do have a choice. That's something that my mother taught me. She said, you know, everybody's going to go through life and they'll be carrying their sack over their shoulders. But you get to choose what you carry in your sack. I chose to carry diamonds. That's what my mother told me. And that's true. Like at different levels, we'll struggle differently. But can I ask you something about that? Because I was learning in one of the classes of Tanya, that the higher the level you get to, the higher the struggle is going to be of the other side. Because you're at such a high level, the Yet Sahara or the Sitra Ahra or whatever it may be is going to really try to get to you because you're at such a high level. Okay, so so you know yes, what I mean? You're going to get to a high you. level, mm-hmm. it's going to be a high struggle. <laughs> a higher struggle. Yeah. So, so yes and no, meaning somebody who has worked through themselves is not going to struggle with the things they used to struggle with because it's like a child who has grown up, right? Like at some point you just don't struggle with the little thing, the things that kids struggle with. It's just not, it's a non-issue to you. It's like the Rambam in his, in his um, introduction to Parachalek on the Talmud, he talks about a king who as a child, used to play ball in the street. Now that he's a king, he can't have that pleasure of playing ball in the street. Does he miss it? No, because the place where he is, right. it's not worth it for yeah. playing in the ball in the street. I feel yeah. like there's, um, and tell me if this makes sense, but I feel like it's kind of like if somebody's an athlete, they're in, let's say they play high school basketball, the challenge is great. And then they get through those challenges and then there's like college level ball. And there's like, you know, at the professional level ball, like the challenges are greater, but at that point, they're more equipped to handle them. So it's not really like, it's not like you're taking the child and putting them into the later stage. It's just within each stage, the struggle is objectively greater, but the person is also more, like it has more muscle to, to handle it. Is that is that what you're saying? Or it's, a, it's along the same lines. I think we're saying the same thing. You know, a certain point, and I know adults who love to eat candy, but at a certain point, some people just don't want to eat candy anymore. Is it that they've worked through it? No, they've just grown up. It's just not, it's just not a thing for them anymore. So on one hand, the certain struggles that we used to have are not a struggle for us anymore. The amazing analogy that Robbie Steinsalz gives is when you're first learning to read. So you're like struggling just to decipher the words. At one point, the words cease to be an obstacle. Now they're just a vehicle for you. 
And now you're just dealing with the concepts that you are studying instead of struggling with piecing together the words. That's just not an issue anymore. On the other hand, I think what you're saying is that the higher a person is and the more spiritually shining they are, the more spiritually powerful they are, the more desirable they are to the other side. Yeah, that's what I was asking you. Yeah. Okay. That's what, yeah. That's but, what, which chapter is it? It talks about that recently. I was reading it. But, the to her is yeah. like full swing. Yeah. Because, because, really wants that person yeah. because they're so, they're, they have, the klipa only has a minimal amount of energy that Hashem gives them. So where do they get their energy from? Jews. <laughs> there are these parasites that suck out. Now, if some, something is already dead, they can't. So they want something that's full of life. And that is a very holy person. On one hand, that's what's the most desirable. But like another example from analogy from Rabbi Steinzeltz is, you know, the thieves, where do they want? Do they want the slums? No, they want the most affluent communities, but those communities are very well guarded. So it will be so much harder for them to steal wealth from those communities. But that's that's what they want. It's just how practical is it for them so much harder. So the same thing, a very holy person, truly that's who they want. But this very holy person has a lot of armed guards, very, very hard right. to get a hold of them. But it's also that you could have a moment like saying to Hillim or Davening, and then this thought comes to your mind because you're doing something spiritual. And then this thought comes to your mind that's not necessarily spiritual at all. So you're talking about Parachavkas, right? Yeah, Where the must- per- yeah. So the person is Davening and then they're like, oh my gosh, I'm getting these thoughts. Maybe it's a sign that my prayer is not good enough. And the says, no, no. Yeah. The fact that the other side is acting up shows you're doing a very good job. Right. I thought that was comforting. Yeah. <laughs> like it's kicking and screaming. It means you're putting up a very good fight. Good for you. Keep going. You were saying earlier about carrying like a heavy bird, like you could choose what to carry in your most, you're carrying diamonds. Can you talk a little, can you talk a, bit, a little bit more about that? Like what if we're, you're carrying actual, like str- a person's actually struggling? How, where does choice come in? Like, how are we choosing what to carry? So yeah. at that point, they're not choosing what to carry. Whichever struggle we're in is very real to us at that time. And even if the struggle is a very low character struggle that maybe somebody else wouldn't be struggling with. But hopefully at some point when we've encountered that struggle and we've resisted again and again and again, we're at a higher place. And so that's where the choice comes in that because we've become so certain that this is something that's not for me and I've resisted it enough time. So I've built enough muscle. Now that's no longer a struggle for me, but I'm struggling from a higher place now. But true, when we're encountering that struggle, we're encountering that struggle. It's real as ever. And we have to just, but that's where learning comes in, by the way, because, you know, all these struggles, they're head on, but learning is not a head on struggle. Learning is a pervasive a fact where when we learn, our mind is just opened up. And now ideas that we know have become a part of us and it helps us move beyond some of the things that we would have been struggling with because it gives us a whole new, a whole new reality. You know, growing up, my friend's mother had this book on like cholesterol or something. And the front of the book had this picture of this delicious looking ice cream with a cherry on top. So yeah. And then you open up the book and it says, so that picture that you see on the front cover is not ice cream with the cherry on top. It's a blocked artery with the blood trying to push through. And suddenly the same picture that looked so tantalizing and irresistible is disgusting. And that's what learning does for us. It just broadens our awareness so that we can 
see things from a different place. And we've like been cured of some basic struggles because we have a whole new awareness. The world has opened up to us. Right. The thing is, is though, I mean, talking about Tanya and that we're all striving to be like the Bainani, I'd like to ask you something about the Bainani, the intermediate person in um, that is referred to a lot in Tanya, the individual whose spiritual labors have brought him to a level of perfection despite him still having active evil inclination. In a nutshell, the Bainani still has the struggle, but he's just work, he's working on it. Like you're saying, you can overcome the struggle, but yet the Bainani doesn't really overcome the struggle. It's there. He's just He's just acting differently to how he really feels inside. That's true, but he struggles at a higher level at some point. Right. Like what he yeah. will doesn't get to choose if he struggles or not. He's always going to have to struggle. Right. It's just but, you overcome something and then you go to the next thing. And then it's the next level. Exactly. Then you're struggling with something else. But it brings us so much joy to know that Hashem has joy in us overcoming the yeah. struggle. Like he's like cheering me on. He like wants me to do this. It makes him so happy. It just makes it so much easier. Like that, that piece of awareness. Yeah. That awareness is comforting to yeah. know that that's what brings him joy. Yeah. <laughs> I think so many people, they spend so much time trying to get rid of the struggle that that's where all their energy goes. And I think the acceptance of the struggle is maybe part of the journey. Um, and I remember reading about that the first time and thinking, oh my gosh, yeah. so not fair. Yeah. Like yeah. some people are just yeah. created to struggle. You know, it's like the author brings from the words of Yitzchak, where he says, make me delicious kinds of foods like I like. And there's two kinds of delicious foods. There's the sweet food, which is the tzaddik. And then there's that food that had to be seasoned. And that's the pain. And it's like, hey, that's not fair. But that's what Hashem chose for us. And the truth is the Benoni might be higher than a tzaddik. Meaning it's true that he... He's not higher than the tzaddik and the purity of his soul, but what he accomplishes, he might accomplish more than a tzaddik. That's the idea of a place where a Baal Baal Tshuva stands, a complete tzaddik doesn't stand. There's something in that struggle that Hashem loves more than anything else. I don't know why, but... (laughs) Right, right. That's what he chose. Right, right. Because we were born to work. We were born to reveal the light of Hashem in the world that takes struggle, it takes work. It takes work, I know. Like, you know, we just... That's the thing, like in that answer of the Rebbe to Adin Steinsaltz, he said, you can't take the struggle out of Torah learning for people. People have to struggle to learn Torah. And that's it. Like we just have to work hard, work hard. Hashem likes that. So how do we balance this acceptance of struggle with this, like with pursuing Menuchas and Nefesh and wanting to have peace of mind? And you know what? That's really important. Like we need to have contentment. Like we're not supposed to be content. In a certain way, we can't be content. We're just never content. Naturally, we're not. Jews are lovesick. You know, like Shir Hashirim. And he, she's saying like, Hishbati eschem I'm making you swear daughters of Jerusalem. If you find my beloved one, what are you going to tell him? Shechailas ahava anechi. That shechailas ahava ani. can't remember it's anechi. Ani, I'll tell you afterwards. That I am lovesick. And we Jews have this condition that we're lovesick. So wherever we are, always yearn for more. That's what the author writes in chapter 19, that our soul is like this flickering flame that just wants to reconnect to its source. It doesn't matter. The flame wants to escape the wick. That means that it's not going to be there anymore. doesn't matter. That's what it wants. 
The, bo- the soul literally wants to escape the shackles of the body, lose its identity, doesn't care, just wants to be one with Hashem. So we have this inner yearning for transcendence, and that's not going to go away. It's part of the Jewish condition of just always wanting more. At the same time, it's really important to find contentment in where we are. And this is something that the Alter Rebbe's senior colleague, Rebbe Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk, writes in his book, Pritzadik. He writes that it's a great principle. Oh, I'm sorry, it's called Priha Aretz. This is something that Rabbi Menachem Mendel Vitebsk writes in his book, Priha Aretz, the 22nd letter. He writes that this is a great principle in the Torah for a person to be happy with his law, even in his law of Torah and service of Hashem. If he's not happy and he's not finding pleasure, but the soul wants gratification. And in fact, the Tzemach Tzedek, this is the grandson of the Alter Rebbe, the third Chabad Rebbe, he wrote to someone who was having strange thoughts. The soul... Strange thoughts, you said? Stray thoughts. He was having stray thoughts. And he said, you have to rejoice in serving Hashem because your soul seeks enjoyment. And if you don't find enjoyment in your Avedas Hashem, you're going to look for it somewhere else. We have to find pleasure in our service. So at the same time that we're struggling and saying, I need to be more, I need to be more, but I'm in a good place right now. I find these moments of connection with Hashem and I love that. And that makes me happy. And even the struggle, I'm bringing Hashem pleasure and that makes me happy. So we have to balance this, this yearning. That's just part of our makeup. It's literally who we are. The, the Rebbe in his introduction to the bilingual edition of the Tanya calls transcendency part of the Jew's nature. He uses that word transcendency. It's literally our makeup. But at the same time, we have to find contentment. Two paragraphs, in two paragraphs, in his preface to the bilingual edition of the Tanya, the Rebbe defines a Jew and his mission in life. If you want, I can read it to you. Please, yes. He says, Hasidus in general and Chabad Hasidus in particular is an all-embracing world outlook and way of life which sees the Jew's central purpose as the unifying link between the creator and creation. The Jew is a creature of heaven and of earth, of a heavenly divine soul, which is truly part of godliness, clothed in an earthly vessel constituted of a physical body and animal soul, whose purpose is to realize the transcendency and unity of his nature. The Rebbe is calling transcendency part of our nature and of the world in which he lives within the absolute unity of God. Our goal is to link heaven and earth to realize how everything is literally one with Hashem. The realization of this purpose entails a two-way correlation, one in the direction from above downward to earth and the other from the earth upward. In fulfillment of the first, which means from above downward, man draws holiness from the divinely given Torah and commandments to permeate therewith every phase of his daily life and his environment, his share in the world. In fulfillment of the second, meaning from the earth upward, man draws upon all the resources at his disposal, both created and man-made as vehicles for his personal ascendancy and with him, that of the surrounding world. So Torah is coming from above to below and that's and, uh, and that's how it's coming down. And then us using the physical for the spiritual is going from down to up. Is that what you're saying? That's and right. that's how we merge them, learning and using the physical. That's right. And we can't, we can't possibly use the physical properly if we don't learn. 
that's the thing. You know, the Baal Shem Tov has this three-part model, which is starts with hachna'a, that's subduing to the will of Hashem. And there has is havdala, which is separation, knowing this is good and this is bad. And then there's hamtaka, which is sweetening, which is no Hashem in all your ways. Now, people want to jump from, okay, I subdue, I'm submitting myself to the will of Hashem, and they want to jump straight into sweetening. It's all good. It's all good. In his book, The Art of Education, which I referenced before by Ravi Yitzchakens, where he said, no, 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 no. You can't do that until you've practiced halacha, knowing, getting a good sense of discernment. This is good and this is bad. You can't just say it's all good. It's all good and use it for Hashem. Some things cannot be rectified. The way they recti- are rectified is by us resisting them and not using them. Not Can everything. you give an example of that? You just mean like an example? Yeah. Okay. So let's say somebody wants to, um, you know, eat in a restaurant that is not kosher, let's say. And But I'm meeting these great people. I'm not going to eat the food. I'm just having the salad. Wait, does halacha condone such behavior? If not, then the way to elevate that restaurant is by not going to that restaurant. You can't be in that restaurant and say, I'm doing the work of Hashem. Hashem doesn't allow it that way. So to say, behold, this is hamtaka, this is sweetening, that is a lack of discernment. It's because someone hasn't practice proper discernment of knowing this is what Hashem wants. This is not what Hashem wants. So halacha plays a big role. That's, I guess that's what you're talking about with Torah. Bringing heaven down to earth is halacha. Right. The wrong thing for the right reasons. Ish. Like you're, yeah. Right. The wrong right. thing for the wrong, the, the wrong thing for the right reasons. So we can, so the, the goal is to be able to be content and at the same time, like just embrace the struggle and not see them as like, it's either we're content or we're struggling, but we, there's no such thing as like them sem- living simultaneously at, together, basically. Is that, is that what you're, so we should have, we should be able to embrace both at the same time. Yeah. And it sounds so hard, but there's so much paradox like that. There's right. so much paradox like that. Like we can do both. Right. Well, we can have a lot of, I'm just trying to think practically how, like a moment of how to do that is have joy in gaining knowledge. And while you're doing that, um, you have your physical life that you're living. So you ha- take that knowledge that you have, like take joy in the knowledge and elevate the phys- you're elevating the physical by doing that. Well, look at us right now, right? So we're sitting at a table, physical table. We have physical implements in order to create this show. Right now, what we're doing is, and this is one of the most mind-blowing ideas from Chapter 37 in Tanya. We're literally elevating the entire world. Why? Because where did this microphone come from? Factory. Where is that factory? Maybe in China. So you think about all the people, the food that they ate, the cars that they drove, the way that they walked to work in order to produce this one microphone all gets elevated when we use that in service of Hashem. There's a story of the Rebbe where this man asked the Rebbe, how is it possible that there's a country with hundreds of millions of people, and he was referring to China, where there's so few Jews. How, and as us Jews, we're supposed to elevate the whole world. How are we elevating a country like that? And the Rebbe said, look at your coat, see where it's made. And the tag said, made in China. And the Rebbe said, when a Jew goes out on a cold winter night to do a mitzvah, to study Torah, to help another Jew, and I don't remember exactly which example the Rebbe used, is elevating that entire factory and everything it took to make that one coat. So 
on one hand, you can say, oh, we're talking about, we're studying Torah right now. We're talking about godly ideas. And that's how we're elevating everything that we're using. But when we live a holy life. That's what I'm saying. Then, things- then we're going to the kids, shopping or whatever it may be that we're doing that's physical. That's what I'm trying to pull together. But I'm trying, I'm saying if we learn, like that's, we're all learning right now and everyone, and we take some of that with us in our daily lives, whatever we're doing physically, and we have that mindset, wouldn't that be elevating the physical? hundred percent. And think about if you're not shopping and you're not making dinner, then you don't have the energy to give the class and you have a bunch of angry kids at home. So all of that serves this purpose of us serving Hashem. Entire world gets elevated in just that. And just being cognizant of that is such a joyful moment of like everything I do is serving Hashem. And we bring up the entire world. What did the Rebbe say? The Rebbe said, every, we use all the resources at our disposal, both created and man-made as vehicles for our personal descendancy, bringing them all up to Hashem. And that's one of the mundane things that we do when we have this awareness that everything I do is for Hashem. At that point, everything we do is holy. Just recognizing Hashgacha practice that makes everything that we do holy. So I feel like where people often feel stuck, and maybe I'll speak for myself because I can't speak for everybody else, but I certainly um, have spoken to people who feel this way, and I myself feel this way sometimes too, is, you know, Rabbi Sachs, uh, Ali Shalom had mentioned in, in our episode with him, and we've mentioned this several times on on a few episodes, but you know, God wants us to be in this spot, in this place where what we want to do meets what needs to be done. And while that's a very good direction, I feel like it's certainly directed me uh, in my mission here. I also feel that at, at what point, maybe you can share from your own life as a you know multi-role woman who teaches classes and you have children and a, and a dynamic life. And at what point do you say, okay, this is my thing. I'm going to have my schedule. I'm done. My give my I do my abida, let's say, in the world. Um, versus like, I need to do more. Like I need to elevate, elevate, elevate. Like at what point? Because if you're a doer, you're always looking to do, do, do. But from your perspective, like how do you know, okay? These are these are my these are my boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have our limitations and we have to know our limitations. We have to know, you know, it's a certain gift of maturity. To know, like, am I doing too much right now? Is this really what Hashem wants of me? And that's actually, I think, the key. Like, what does Hashem want from me right now? And sometimes Hashem doesn't want you to go out and give that class that night. I think you answered the question earlier, actually, when you said that in order to be able to give a class, you have to be able to internalize it and be able to, you know, um, forgot the words you used, but meaning like you're not going to give a class unless you know that you can you know, well, that's something else that she now I have to qualify that because truth be told, I never feel like I'm ready to give class, even right. when I prepare <laughs> 20 hours for class. And I remember one lady saying to me, You prepare for class? Are you kidding? Of course. Sometimes that's 20 hours. So it seems so natural. <laughs> to sometimes you. 20 hours she prepares the class. That's amazing. And, and I'll never feel 100% ready if we're going to be 100% and honest. I think we feel that way about our podcasts. Like, Sometimes we spend hours with the questions and it never feels... Yeah, we can edit. She can. She yeah. Can. I'm talking about like, preparing like the questions. Right, right, we never right. feel that's like true. it's perfect. That's true. <laughs> right. So, but, so and, that, that's, and then that's the place where we have to say, okay, this is yeah. ridiculous. What does Hashem want from me right now? I, am I going to be my Shrebenu? No, I'm not. Right. So this is the best I can do for right now. And, you know, obviously yeah. you can't walk into class unprepared. Right. Yeah. But, and but then, then at the same an, time, there's, there's the also other different... Thing different times where we can do more and we can do less. And the question is, where does Hashem want me to be right now? 
That's the Friedrich Rebbe says, you know, in Hallel, we say, Ana Hashem Kiani Avdecha. People translate that as, please Hashem, for I am your servant. And he said, take a look at the word how Anna is spelled. It's spelled Aleph Nun Hey. If it was spelled Aleph Nun Aleph, it would mean, please, I am your servant. But it's Aleph Nun Hey, which means we're. Where do you want me to be, Hashem, right now? Because I am your servant. And sometimes he wants us to just be laying low at that moment and not be doing a million different crazy things. And we have to, we have to be able to check in and see like, you know, sometimes we have to push ourselves. Sometimes we have to say, you know, you feel like you can't do it, but you can do it anyway. Go ahead and do it. Most people have to push themselves. Right. You know, but other times we have to be honest and say, you know what, this is not something I can do right now. I need to stop. And and I, when do we know that? I think it's got to be the mindset of if I'm going to go do this, I'm not going to be able to put my all into my kids tomorrow or, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to be myself, or, you know, and be the wife that I could be if I do this right now. I think we kind of have to ask ourselves those questions. But if Hashem wants you to be there, then the Vaida, it has like a ripple effect in that you are there for your kids. I'm saying like when you, like you said, like the code in China yeah. is elevating this, this right. person. Oh yeah. What we're Rebbe, doing. It's, yeah. it's the ripple effect yeah. of you doing, if you're Hashem, if you're where Hashem wants you to be, then you're not like neglecting your kids. You're, That's true. Yes, you're saying the other way. I heard this story of a woman in Israel who has connected her a lot of kids. And she wrote, she was a, she's a principal, or at least at some point she was a principal of a school and she didn't want to do it anymore. And I could see why. I mean, with that many kids, I don't know how you would be a principal. I can't be a principal. I'll tell you right now, I can't (laughs) be a principal. And she wrote a letter to the Rebbe and the Rebbe said that your work as a principal will enhance your being a mother and how you are as a mother is going to enhance who you are as a principal. Nice. And the truth is I can say, okay, I don't want to give classes anymore. It's too hard for me. Uh, it takes too much time to prepare. It takes a lot of energy or, you know, think about the podcast that you do and how many people that you reach all the time. You say, okay, I, I don't want to do it. But the truth is your work as being an influencer and getting so many people to do the right thing and get in touch with our deeper self is enhancing who you are as a mother at the same time. It's like, I you know, that to be those sephiris of Netzach and Haid, which are the two yeah. legs, the right left, the right leg progresses the left leg and the left leg progresses the right leg. And it's just when you start feeling like you're hopping on one foot, <laughs> then you know that something's out of whack and you have to reconfigure. And I think you're right that it takes maturity but what do you- and trusting your intuition to know how much you can handle. Like, what do you think our greatest resource or power is as women today in the Jewish world? You know, I feel like women are so misunderstood to the point that we misunderstand ourselves with all the confusion that there is in the world out there. Like, you know, I used to work as a graphic artist and in the art office there, one day a person came in with the Time magazine and the front of the magazine was a picture of a Pakistani girl. I don't know if you remember this. She was wearing that crimson scarf. She was like strikingly beautiful. Yeah. And they tried to find the woman and see where she is now. And they did. They found her. They had to get permission from her husband to take off her burqa. And and she really didn't look so beautiful anymore. They didn't believe it was the same person. They had to take, like, they were measuring the pupillary distance to see is she actually the same person. And she was. And I admit that I was disappointed that she didn't turn out to be as beautiful as she was as a child. That's a very superficial thing, but 
I was disappointed. And I remember somebody commenting and saying how in that culture, they so mistreat women. They so devalue them. You know, she, she, she was in Pakistan and the way they treat the woman there, not as people, no freedom. They can't think for themselves. And then it struck me that in our Western culture, women are also mistreated. The way that they're flung up on the billboards and they're valued for exactly the same things they are in those third world countries, just with different packaging. And we fall for it but they're not admiring us as women. They're doing the same thing that they're doing in Pakistan, just with different kind of packaging. And it's our responsibility not to fall for that and to realize that our deepest gift as women is the act of being, just being a divine channel. Like, yes, we're doing right now, we're, we're speaking and you're doing a podcast and we're talking about you know a class and that's very out there. And that would be like a masculine energy kind of thing. And we need to do that too. But we have to remember that women are not in competition with men. And our way of contributing to the world is in a different style and the way that the world needs it. There's this fascinating book by Miriam Kosman. It's called Circle Arrow Spiral, Exploring Gender in Judaism. And she talks about the male role of bestowing and the female role of the female role of receiving. And she said that people think receiving is taking, but that's not true. Receiving is giving. Like if you're speaking to someone and they're listening deeply to you, so officially you're the bestower because you're speaking. They're the receiver because they're listening, but they're giving to you by listening. It's it's like your students and you, like your students are receiving from you, but you feel that they're giving to they're you. They're giving. That's right. Exactly that. Exactly that. And so we can't underestimate the power of being a receiver and being a receiver in all different kinds of roles of graciously accepting the bounty and reveling in that. In a certain way, you know, we talk about contentment. Men, I don't know if they ever have license to be content. But women, in a certain way, we have to be content. That's part of our being. In fact, the Talmud and Chagiga talks about the promise that Hashem gives a woman in the coming future. And the Talmud says that, that it's a greater promise that Hashem gives to the woman more than he gives to the men. And quotes what, the Navi, what's the promise? Because he quotes the, the Talmud quotes the Navi Yeshaya saying, you woman at leisure, he calls them women at leisure. He calls them daughters of security. Only the women are called at leisure. Only they are called people who have true security and they have a greater promise. And you know why they have this greater promise of leisure and security? Because they were enablers, because they encouraged their husbands to learn and because they sent their children off to school and because they were waiting for dinner with their, for their husbands. So as much as we need to learn, and we literally, I don't know how any of it exists without learning. It's just, it's not an option anymore. You know, at some point it, it was okay to be, I don't know if it was ever okay, but it seemed to be okay to be ignorant. You could have gotten, gotten away with it. Today, we cannot afford to be ignorant. We just cannot. But at the same time, we can't forget our role as enablers to encourage the important people in our life to learn and to be that bedrock and foundation that they need to go learn. So accepting that role of being a woman, being an enabler is so liberating because 
it really validates who we are as women. We can't forget that women are enablers. We can allow people to be greater than they ever will become. And we are receivers in that way. And a receiver is a giver. It's something that I feel strongly about, that we can never forget our role as women of just enabling the important people in our life to do their path. And if that means that one night I can't give class because that's what has to happen in my house and it's not going to have to happen. It's not going to happen if I'm giving class that night, then so be it. Then I can't give class every once in a while. That's what happens. Right. Idea that women are receivers. Where, where is, does this come from? Well, this is from the Kabbalah. I mean, right. the women are malchus. And the, yeah, but isn't malchus speaking, giving? Malchus is speaking. The Rebbe speaks about this paradox where Miriam Hanavia is called Achais Arin, the sister of Arin. And in that way, she is as though like um, inferior to him. But she's Miriam Hanavia. She's Miriam the prophetess whose prophecy brought Moshe Rabbeinu into the world. Right. So on one hand, she is somebody who is beyond all of this, channeling it into the world. On the other hand, she's as though below it and having to accept. And the Rebbe said, it's this duality and the woman has to be cognizant of it. On one hand, she has to realize that she has to be able to accept from her husband. She has to be able to be that receiver and accept influence. On the other hand, she should know that once she does, what she gives back is greater than anything she has received. Well, that's beautiful. What would you tell a, a, a modern woman of today who's, you know, it's different now, like you say, I mean, we do have more roles than the women did back then. It was easier to be a receiver and then be able to give even more because they, the role was there. Now right. it's a bit blazed because we have so many roles and we're, we're, you know, there are women out there making the living in the home. Well, women were making a living in the olden days too. Yeah, that's true. Right. But it, there's something but, different now. Yeah, not in the same way. I agree with you. And um, at that, at this kind of this kind of question is so individual that I wish I can just give you an answer. But yeah. because each of us is constantly trying to figure out how to draw the line, that's why we need to have a mashbia, a spiritual yeah. mentor. It's true, right? And and probably like it's good to have male mentors, but I think for a woman, it's very important to have a female mentor. Hundred percent. Like woman has to have a female mentor. I think even for me to listen to your classes, the Tanya classes coming from a female made a big difference to me. Studying as woman, I think it's very important. Like an all woman study group is so important. I actually I, I once had this discussion with Dennis Prager something for. We had this interview and before the interview, I was telling him that I think it had started off him asking me if there's men at class. And I told him there's not, there are not. And um, I said, I don't think there should be men at class. There has to be a time where women get together and we're studying in our uniquely feminine way. And he said, you know, I agree with you a hundred percent. And men have to have that kind of experience where it's just the men studying and there's no woman there. It's a different kind of energy. And he said, you know how many people said to me, Dennis, you're a father figure to me? Because they've had so many women in their life, like telling them what to do and mentoring them. He said their elementary school teacher was a woman. And then before you know it, their high school teacher was a woman. And they didn't have a male figure to look at and say, well, this is how I have to be. So 
you know, definitely we should be listening to classes from erudite scholars. A lot of them are men and we should, but there also has to be that study time where it's just us women connecting and converging in a uniquely feminine way. And in a certain way, we get things differently. And there's a fascinating Hayyam Yaim where the previous Rebbe is talking about women bringing these ingenious claims that the scholars of their time didn't think of. And he said, where did they get these claims from? And he said it because it mattered to them. And when it matters to you, then you get something that's way beyond your intellectual capacity. And I think that as women, a lot more things matter to us. We tend to personalize you know, our spiritual journey and working at it together as a group as women is a whole uniquely different way of coming to understand. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't learn from men. Of course we should. Right. But there has to be that special time of us as women just getting together and studying. You know, they did this study where like, when does the brain get into the zone? You know, that place where yeah. it's just that flow, you know, Mahaley Sixth Cent, the Haley, however you pronounce his name, you like talks about this brain state right. of the flow. And one of the ways is a person talking to a same gender audience. This is a secular study. But the speaker speaking to an all same gender audience, if they're male speaking to a male audience, female speaking to a female audience, their brain tends to go into the state of flow. Interesting. Yeah. Really cool. So, so what is that great? Which one is our greatest resource? The, the way we give, like ultimately how we give or how we receive. And I'm going to say it's us choosing what Hashem wants at that moment. Like at each moment, just saying. What does Hashem want for me right now? A lot of times we know the answer. You know, you think like, I don't know the answer. I have to consult. We have to consult because we have to have a mentor, but we also have to ask ourselves sometimes, like we know the truth. Yeah. Like, don't fool yourself. (laughs) Yeah. In your years of teaching Tanya, what was something like surprising or thought provoking or like counterintuitive that you maybe wouldn't have otherwise thought that way until you started learning? Okay. So on one hand, I can't answer that question because What's so unique about learning is once you learn it, you're like, of course, that's the way it is. But I do remember those moments where I, I encountered something and I was like, what does that mean? Like, for example, the altar brings from the Gemara, the altar brings from the Talmud, the statement, thoughts of sin, which are worse than sin. Like one second, if he actually stole, then it's worth to think about stealing, like, right. what does that mean? So, of course, doing the actual sin is worse. But the effect on the soul is much greater when the person is constantly harboring the thoughts. So you can say like this, well, I'm not going to speak gossip because the Torah says, don't speak gossip. So I'm going to be a really nice woman right now, and I'm not going to say everything bad I think about that lady. But what am I doing instead? I'm going to think, oh my gosh, do you know what she is? Guess what? It's really good that you didn't say those words because the effect on the world is tremendous. Thank God you didn't release those negative energy into the world. But by harboring those thoughts within ourselves, the inner corruption that we cause is incredible. And so that's what it means that thoughts of sin are worse than the sin itself. The effect that it has on the soul is tremendous because our thoughts are so intimate to our soul. The way the Maharal describes it is like staining an expensive silk garment. That's why thoughts are so precious. 
And so, you know, we have to think like, that's one of the things the Alta Reva teaches us in Tanya is that we don't just control our speech and we don't just control our action. We control our thoughts. Right. So what would be your top, if you had to think of a top tool for controlling your thought, what would it be? I don't have to think because the Alta Reva gives us the tool. <laughs> he said, think another thought. You push it out with two hands, you think another thought. That's it. You, there are some people who can think two thoughts at once. They're very rare. <laughs> Most people cannot think more than one thought at a time. So if you're having a thought you shouldn't think, rechannel, just think something else, choose another thought, pick it out of your pocketbook, whatever you want to think, good thought. Right. So instead of trying to not think about that thought, like the elephant. Yeah. 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 Just, just take on a new one. Replace it with something different. You have to replace it with something else. Yeah. Right. Don't think about think elephants. What are you thinking? That's, yeah. Like I've heard other ones, like discuss this in another podcast with Sue Friedman. Um, it was actually Chase Taub when he gave a class, he said, think of it of, of people knocking on your door and you're just not allowing, you're ignoring the knocks. Yeah, you're just not letting them in. That's right, the story. Yeah, this is more proactive. It's not not allowing them in. It's like, let's take on another thought. Let's take on another thought. Yeah. It goes hand in hand because that idea of the knocking on the door is from the student of the Magad of Mesrich. Right. You've shared some of Rabbi Steinsaltz's parables and teachings throughout a conversation. Is there anything special or another one that you can share with us as we wrap things up? Yeah, so... If I were to share my favorite ones, I feel like I wouldn't do them justice because a lot of them are so complex, but they're not complex when we're learning those subjects. But one of my favorite is how he draws the distinction between the act of being close to Hashem and the feeling of being close to Hashem. And they're not one and the same. He said, you have to ask yourself what you want. Do you actually want to be close or do you want a simulation of being close? For example, there's the act of eating, which should be nutritious. And then there's the pleasure of eating, which should really come together with the act of eating. You should eat healthy food and you should enjoy the healthy food that you eat. But sometimes they don't come together. Let's say somebody has to get in some nutrition and they blend this terrible blend together just to get in what they get. So they're getting the nutrition that they need, but they're not getting the pleasure. The most essential thing is happening though. They're getting the nutrition. On the other hand, Somebody could be eating cotton candy and whoever else, whoever who knows what else they're eating and they're getting the pleasure of eating, but they could be suffering from malnutrition. So we can't confuse the act of actually experiencing closest to Hashem, which we do every time we study Torah and every time we do a mitzvah, whether or not we're fe feeling that spiritual high. It would be so wonderful if the two always came together. We're right. studying Torah, we're doing a mitzvah, we're experiencing that spiritual high. That's ideal. But if we're not experiencing the high, at least we should know that we're getting it, whether or not we're feeling it. And if all you want is the high, he quips and says there's a whole industry for that, such as substance and other artificial ways of getting the feeling, but you're not getting the connection. Right. Wow. That, that, That's, that yeah. was explained very well. Yeah, it was very well said. You know, I was once on a plane with my niece. We were flying back from a wedding. She was little then, like nine years old. And she was watching that screen, you know, the altitude and the speed of the plane. And she comes running to me like exuberantly. She's like, Rachel, I was watching the screen. And I noticed something so interesting. When we were flying lower and we were flying slower, I felt the plane moving. But when we flew so high and we were flying so fast, I didn't feel the plane move at all. And sometimes our most intense spiritual achievements are not things that we feel. But we can't kid ourselves thinking that if we feel it, that's the indicator to know that it's happening. A lot of times the most 
intense spiritual achievements are being made and we are not feeling that spiritual bliss. But we should be cognizant of the fact that we have made this intense spiritual connection. So it's about trust. We have to, is really just to trust that whether or not we feel it, it's happening. Meaning it's a, it's a spiritual thing, whether or not we actually feel the spiritual high. So instead of, it. instead of bitachan, I'm going to say it's an awareness. And the awareness that we get will be from studying Tanya, for example, studying. Because when we study, we become aware of what's happening. When we Can you give an example of something that we wouldn't necessarily feel, but we know? Like every in every act of a mitzvah, we are right. fusing with the divine. Mm-hmm. So and whether or feel not it. you're feeling it, it is happening. So that's a great thing to tell girls like who daven, let's say in school, like not, like, you know, especially high school girls, like teens engage, they connect everywhere. They're going too fast. And, you know, for whatever reason, and hearing that is actually very helpful. Like it's a good message to share. You don't have to always be like feeling that spiritual connection. It's you're accomplishing what you're, you're supposed to by davening. And your, your soul is feeling this bliss. You may not be experiencing it, but your soul, which is constantly yearning to connect with Hashem at this moment is connecting to Hashem. Like, can you get better than that? And then when you think about it, you do experience the bliss. Maybe not at the same level as you might've wanted to, but it gives you a glimpse into what is happening. Like one of the, one of the breakthrough ideas of Tanya for me, chapters four and five, just incredible to understand what happens when we study Torah and the fusion that happens of our mind with Hashem is unparalleled. You don't find any of that anywhere in the world. This fusion, anytime you study, there's a fusion of mind and idea. And this is anything you study. So there's mind and there's idea and mind cannot get the idea, but mind grapples with the idea until it gets it. Now idea becomes mind. There's this fusion of mind and idea. The idea literally becomes you, just like you are what you eat, you are what you know. Right. Now that you have this idea in your mind, an idea that was too here that if you would have tried to encounter it, you can't, now you could because idea one enlarged your mind. That's true of all ideas. They enlarge our mind. They become part of our mind. But when it comes to understanding Torah, Torah literally is Hashem. It's such a wild idea. Torah is Hashem. You know, we think of ourselves and our wisdom and they're separate. So we don't understand Hashem's wisdom is him. The Talmud says, deciphering the word Anochi, I am the first of the Sarah's Hadibres. The, ter- the Talmud breaks it up into an acronym. Ana Nafshi Kesavis Yahavis. I myself have given, have written it and given it. But Hasidus explains that means that I have actually inscribed my soul and given it to you in giving the Torah. So when we study Torah, we are literally imbibing Hashem. I know that sounds crazy, but it's an incredible infusion of mind with Hashem that's happening. We're literally becoming one with him. So that's happening anytime we study Torah. And we channel that when we become aware of what is happening. But even if we don't feel it, we should know that anytime we study study Torah, anytime we do a mitzvah, we are creating a fusion between ourselves and Hashem. And that is unparalleled. It's unbeatable. It's what we wish for. When you say study Torah, somebody who doesn't really study much Torah, where what would you say is like a good entry point? So you're saying if you want to study Torah, where's the best best, best place to start, or where in Torah does this fusion happen? So so there's the written Torah and there's the oral Torah. When it comes to the written Torah, even if you don't understand what you're reading, you are having that fusion. 
So you read words of Tehillim, you read words of Chumash. You're just reading those words. That is called Torah study. In Hebrew. In Hebrew. Okay. Saying Tehillim is Torah study? It's part of Tanakh. So when you say Tehillim, you're actually reading the holy words of Hashem. It's literally Hashem. It's, It's Hashem as he is exposed in the words of Tanakh. So saying in English is not recommended because you really want to read the original text. Unless you can't read Hebrew. If you can't read Hebrew, then you can read it right, in English. Right. And definitely, you Hebrew, you're, yeah. definitely you are forming connection. But to read it in the original Hebrew is a special experience because it's truly it's truly one with yeah. Hashem, even if I, you I mean, don't I've understand seen that it. In my own life. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that if someone wants to start with very basic study, start with learning some verses of the Torah portion that week. Just a few verses. If you can read it in Hebrew, great. If you well, can't. Chitas, and you and your husband sponsor it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Chitas, the chayenu. Yeah. Read some of those. And then when it comes to the oral Torah, the holiness inheres in the concept. So if you're going to read some page in Talmud or, or Shulchan Aruch, you want to read Jewish law, but you don't want to take the time to think of what you're reading. So it's not that much of the experience. <laughs> but the fusion, fusion happens Either way. Either way. Right. And we definitely have to do Chumash. We should do Chumash every single day. It's like, you want to start somewhere? Start with the Torah portion of that week. Then there's Chitas, which is Chumash, Tehillim, and Tanya. So you could do a daily dose of the Pasha that week of Chumash, and then a daily dose of Tehillim, and a daily dose of Tanya. And I do it in the mornings, and it really grounds and centers me. It's something that I took on for my birthday. You can subscribe to Chayeno and you'll get this weekly booklet or you could get the app Chayeno. That's really great. Like you might think you're taking up your time doing it, not doing something else, but this will just help you in your day, throughout your day. And I see when I I had taken on to do this, I just see that it applies to everything I'm doing or sharing in my day somehow. Chitas is so potent. I was just reading a letter of the Rebbe where this is so unusual talking about knowing where to be and at what time. The Rebbe told this lady to stop taking accounting of herself and in a way that she was always, I guess, pushing herself. And he said, for right now, what I want you to be doing is be careful with Tara Samashbacha, with family purity, with Kashras, with inviting guests. So these three Torah ordinances. So she should invite guests, you mean? She should invite guests, but she basically, I guess, she doesn't have to be out there doing a lot of things. She okay. has to be an Akara Sabayas. That was the words the Rebbe used. The term right. Rebbe used Akara Sabayas, the mainstay of the home. She should be careful with family purity, with kashras, with having guests, I guess, you know, her Shabbos guests or whatever. And then the Rebbe said, Chitas. Oh, wow. And you would I'm think, so glad to hear. I was wondering what about was her the woman. To the Rebbe? What was her dilemma? I didn't see what her question was, but from the Rebbe's answer, okay. you can tell that she wanted, she was like, more. She right. wanted to be doing more, accomplishing, right. being out there, like asking herself if she's doing enough to meet her potential. And the Rebbe said, for the next year, he gave her a date. It was a little more than a year. I don't want you to be thinking of any of those other things besides just being the mainstay of your home right now. I want you to be careful with family purity, with kosher, with having guests. And then he said, Chitas. the Rebbe said, Chitas. Oh, I'm so happy to hear the word. Where was this letter? <laughs> this letter was printed. I saw it in a booklet. I, I take a picture and send it to you. Something- so there's this concept that you're sharing that when we don't feel it, that it's still all there. And we have this to know that we have this deep connection. But then when we do feel it, Hashem values that too. Right. And 
And what I want to say is that when we do feel it, then we manifest it. That's what Kavana is about. And it affects other people. Like then we become like, it becomes like we're a channel for that, that we're experiencing. We always end with a favorite quote or a parting message. Is there something that you would like to share with all of us? Yeah. So some of the greatest advice I got is from my mother. And one of the things my mother always says is, don't let better be the enemy of good. A lot of times we're like, okay, I can't do this, so I'm not doing anything at all. You can't learn your Chumash amazing today? So learn it as best as you can. Don't just drop it. Do whatever you can, the best you can at the moment. Don't let better be the enemy of good. And then another thing she always told us is all you have to do is put your finger on the rock. You know that story of Rehanan ben Daisa who was so poor that he couldn't even bring a carbon. And he wanted so badly to bring something up to Yerushalayim and he was very artistic. So he ended up chiseling out a stone and made a beautiful masterpiece, but he couldn't even pay portermen. He didn't have enough money. And finally, Hashem sent a group of angels and they took, he said, we need a certain amount of money. It was exactly how much money he had. And they said, one condition. They said, you have to put your finger on the rock and help us carry it too. And he said, no problem. So he, as if, carried the rock, but they were transported before they knew it to Jerusalem. And it seems like he was carrying the rock, but really... All he had to do was put the finger on the rock and he was transported. And a lot of times, you know, we think like, I have these grand plans, but I can't do it. How am I ever going to do it? Just put your finger on the rock. Who are we kidding? We never do anything. Hashem who always does everything for us. And we just have to start out and Hashem completes our efforts. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rachel. This was... Thank you so much for... So empowering and uplifting and... I hope Thank that you. our listeners are going to, going to tap into the treasure of Tanya and realize that it's ours for the taking. It's a treasure that we have and let's go for it. 